0: specialist in pathology, which includes virology. I trained at Cambridge University in the UK. I'm the ex-president of the pathology section of the Medical Association. I was previously an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine doing a lot of teaching. I was the chairman of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada Examination Committee in Pathology in Ottawa. But more to the point, I'm currently the chairman of a biotechnology company in North Carolina selling a COVID-19 test. And I might, you might say, I know a little bit about all this. The bottom line is simply this. There is utterly unfounded public hysteria driven by the media and politicians. There is absolutely nothing that can be done to contain this virus, other than protecting older, more vulnerable people. It should be thought of nothing more than a bad flu season. This is not Ebola. It's not SARS. There is no action of any kind needed other than what happened last year when we got uh, felt unwell. We stayed home, we took chicken noodle soup, we didn't visit Granny, and we decided when we would return to work. We didn't have anyone need anyone to tell us. Masks are utterly useless. There is no evidence base for their effectiveness whatsoever. Paper masks and fabric masks are simply virtue signalling. They're not even worn effectively most of the time. It's, it's utterly ridiculous seeing these unfortunate, uneducated people. I'm not saying that in a perjurative sense. Seeing these people walking around like lemmings, obeying without any knowledge base to put the mask on their face. Social distancing is also useless because COVID is spread by aerosols, which travel 30 meters or so before landing. Enclosures have had such terrible unintended consequences. Everywhere should be open tomorrow, as was stated in the Great Barrington Declaration that I circulated prior to this meeting. And a word on testing. I do want to emphasize that I'm in the business of of testing for COVID. I do want to emphasize that positive test results do not, underlined in neon, mean a clinical infection it's simply driving public hysteria, and all testing should stop unless you're presenting to hospital with some respiratory problem.
1: Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare. The battle of ideas, and uh, the voice you heard there uh, is not joining me. His name is uh, Dr. Roger Hutchinson. Um but I received that um, via WhatsApp. However, who, is, who are joining me, not who is joining me, who, who is joining, who are joining me, I can never get this right. It's Nick Hudson from Panda. We are. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Claire Craig, a consulting pathologist in the UK. Is that right, Claire?
2: That's right. Thanks
3: for having me. Oh, fantastic. And, great. And also somebody we're proud to have as a member of Panda. Oh, great. Thanks. The team just keeps expanding. <laughs>
1: uh so yesterday on my show i had uh professor Sukharit, um bhakti who gave a sterling uh shout out to um panda and yourself nick
3: yeah it was very kind of him I, I i don't think the the attribution to to me was particularly fair to the now huge team of panda um incorporating many scientists uh people from you know any number of disciplines and uh but it was very gracious of him and we do we did very much appreciate that shout out well
1: let's just quickly uh remind everybody what panda is
3: sure i mean we're a multidisciplinary group of scientists and professionals who have been trying to grapple with the bad science that has characterized the public policy response to the pandemic Um, we came out very early on pointing out that uh, negative consequences of lockdown were not being taken into account by any of the modeling teams and there was no sign of it being uh, attended to by our ministerial advisory committee or the NICD or anybody. And um, that paper got us into hot water because at the time lockdown was this incredibly popular idea. Um, But we carried on. and We proceeded to investigate the epidemic itself. We noticed and pointed out to to the NICD and uh, the Actuarial Society and others who were producing these models, that they were making obvious mistakes, overestimating the severity of the epidemic, overestimating the susceptibility of the, the population, the infection fatality rates, the duration that it would take to get to the peak. Mm-hmm. So we went hard after those models. Every single point we made back in May has since been proven to be entirely spot on. Those models have been proven to be hopelessly wrong. The adverse consequences of lockdown are now abundantly understood we've crashed our economy uh, for something that was just somewhat worse than a seasonal flu and that's another thing they missed we pointed out to them that other coronaviruses had been seasonal that the in the world health organization promoted naming paper of the virus they'd pointed out that fact and said that this was expected to be seasonal and there we were locking down in You know, um, late summer, early early autumn, when we had a long way to go to winter, and everybody was proclaiming the success of lockdown. It was just a matter of waiting for our flu season to get going, and then, of course, the deaths came. Um, And yeah, so we've we've since realised that this was not a public health story; that this was political, Mm. and we took the decision to. Um, take our work international because we realized that what was happening was that our government in persisting with these idiotic policies uh, was getting air cover from other countries, governments and from in particular the World Health Organization and we felt that an international effort uniting the voices of people uh, like Dr. Craig and many others uh, was going to be required to put an end to this madness which is t- exerting so much destructive force all over the world. I mean, it's really an, an hysteria. German, mm. There's, no, uh, there's mm. nothing else to call it. It's a, it's a it's an hysterical mess. And it's been the worst public health policy reaction that the world has ever seen. We'll be living with the consequences for years. And it's really the job of every clear-headed and rational individual now to rally behind the effort against these technocratic idiots who are perpetuating these policies.
1: Uh, Dr. Craig, you're a consulting pathologist. What does that mean in...
2: That's right. So um, pathologists are the people that do postmortems, but that's a very small part of what we actually do. And the main thing we do is be responsible for diagnostic testing. So I'm an expert in diagnostic testing. And I think a lot of where we've gone wrong has been misinterpreting test results Mm. and then ending up in a situation where we're getting pressured labs producing faulty results.
1: Uh, Just to, I just want to make sure I've got, I've got your bio right. You, you were work, you worked with the NHS.
2: Yeah, I've worked the NHS. I trained in the NHS. Um, I haven't worked in the NHS for a while because I went to work on the 100,000 Genomes Project on the cancer arm and I've worked in artificial intelligence more recently.
1: Okay, so basically you don't really know what you're talking about. (laughs) 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 Um, and I find it I find it quite pertinent uh, that you said um, you you ha- you're an expert in testing because that's what all of this is pretty much based on everything everything is about PCR testing.
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, it, a lot of it is. But the other part of the testing that's gone wrong is misinterpreting the antibody testing, so that the interpretation as a result of the antibody testing has been that we've got these susceptible populations still. Now, obviously, immunity is complex, and there are lots of different ways of measuring immunity, but this particular measure holds a lot of weight politically, and it's just been misinterpreted. So what the manufacturers do when they design a test is they have to choose a group they want to test negative and a group they want to test positive. And so for the positive group they chose, blood samples from patients who've been in hospital, so severe COVID, but that's fair enough. And for the negative group, they all chose donor blood samples from before COVID arrived because they couldn't have had it. And that's fair enough too, if you're designing a test to tell you who had COVID. And that's what their test does. It shows who had it. It gives you no indication of who had prior immunity to it because anybody with prior immunity, by definition, was going to test negative. And so these small percentages that we see are because there was a lot of prior immunity. And we know that from other studies with other aspects of the immune system and cells and that kind of thing. But primarily we know that because the household transmission studies, the maximum that anybody living on top of someone else in a house who had it, the maximum number they infected was only half of the people they lived with because the other half were immune. We
1: have to keep driving this this point home um, every time we have this conversation. But Dr. Craig, what is a PCR test?
2: Um, Right. So a PCR test um, is a test for the nucleic acid. So either DNA or for some viruses, they use RNA as their replicative material. So what you're trying to do is identify a sequence of letters in the code using Um, this test. And the way it's done is to um, try to match exactly a sequence of letters. But the very well, the first step is to transfer your RNA into DNA. And then you multiply that up, you double it, and then you double it again, and then you double it again. And all the while, you're looking to see if you can find the sequence, one of the sequences that would match with COVID. But because of all of these doublings, and because replication isn't perfect, and we, we know that, that's that's how we end up with diversity in biology. Um, and because sampling isn't perfect, and there's all sorts of other DNA from them, the person themselves, from other viruses up their nose, and bacteria up their nose, um, from you know, if it's going in their throat, a bit of lunch maybe. You no, know, there's all sorts of stuff in that sample. And, and once you've multiplied it up that many times, and you're hunting for a particular sequence, you can find it. You can potentially find one, but it's not there. And that's that's okay when it's done well. It's actually a really good test when it's done well. It's very specific, mm. um, and that's why the medical community has so much faith in it. Because normally, it's one of the most reliable tests we have in medicine. But the thing is that it has a history of going wrong, and when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. And there are lots of reports in the medical literature of pseudo-epidemics where this kind of testing has gone wrong and created the illusion of an epidemic where all of the patients and all the doctors involved fully believed in the diagnosis, fully believed they were amidst an epidemic. And I think that's what's happened here.
1: So what are you suggesting? Are you, are you saying that that the the, the conclusions... Uh, resulting from this, all this PCR testing is, has been diabolically wrong?
2: Um, I, I don't think it always has been. So I, I think that actually the testing done at the beginning of the pandemic was set up in a similar way to the exactly the way I would have set it up. That is to try and find every possible case. And you accept when you're finding every possible case
0: that you're also going to
2: find things that, that are not right. But at the beginning of an epidemic, when you're climbing the death curve, that's an acceptable compromise to make, because you're trying to find every case to try to reduce contacts, to try to slow the spread. And the purpose of doing that is not to stop the virus, because that's impossible. The purpose of doing that is that when you reach herd immunity, you want the minimum number of people in the community to have already caught it, because if you have fast spread, a higher number will have already caught it and there'll be some preventable death. So by slowing it, you can prevent some death. And quite how harsh the interventions should be to prevent some deaths at that point is a different question. But when you reach peak deaths, you have to change strategy. So there's always a choice with a test of trying to find every possible case or only finding definite cases. And if you stick with trying to find every possible case, you will run into problems with finding things that are not real. So we should have switched to finding every definite outbreak. So that's quite a different way of testing. You're no longer testing an individual patient. You're testing the epidemic to find definite outbreaks and you can be very very strict on your criteria because you don't need to find every possible case. Because once you've identified an outbreak, you can then go and test all the people involved in that in a different way to make sure you find a possible place within the outbreak. But we didn't change strategy. Nobody changed strategy. We kept on going. And so when everybody complained that these death curves were taking a long, long time to fall, that's because we were including people who didn't have COVID but had been diagnosed with it and were dying of other things. And then in the UK, after we'd had our spring peak, we had a a summer lull during which there was this constant trickle of cases and deaths. Just a few, just a few. And actually the rate at which they appeared was indicative that we had reached the false positive rate of the test. Um, Because it was it was tending to a mean. It was varying day by day because things change in the lab day but they were tending to a mean and it, the mean was a number we could use to test to to kind of calc- do calculations and we could show that the people the cases and the deaths had characteristics that were not like spring covid which was really very characteristic you know we had deaths in men 60% of them then the deaths were male we had it was a death it was a cases were in the elderly the um, ill people and the deaths were much more prevalent among people of Black ethnicity and Asian ethnicity. So that, and it, was, it was higher in hypertensive, obesity, diabetes. You know, there's all sorts of very, very characteristic things that were not the case in the summer. But then in autumn, things started to go very wrong. Um, and we had misdiagnosis increasing and increasing, but we could see it all in the data because there are characteristics of this diagnosis that were coming through, including the characteristics of people being diagnosed, but also telltale signs like in certain regions For every increase in the number of COVID deaths, there was a decrease equivalent size in the number of non-COVID deaths. So you could see that these were being mislabeled.
1: And is there correlation to uh, the seasons?
2: the seasons sorry yeah is there a correlation having had the epidemic we should expect endemic covid to come back in the winter Mm. um do you think we have had real covid come back in the winter and there are focal pockets of the country which have had excess deaths in the autumn that correlate with covid deaths covid label deaths and what's interesting about those pockets is they will areas that were not hard hit in the spring. So, you know, it makes, some, it makes logical sense, and especially given the interventions we took in spring, and particularly in May, at a time when coronaviruses are not particularly prevalent seasonally, it's not their favorite time of year. So those interventions that we took may have meant that fewer people had it when we reached the herd immunity level that was required for May, but that in winter, because that's coronavirus's favourite time of year, we might need a slightly higher level of herd immunity to keep on top of things. And we, I think, we just saw in September a top up in some places, and so that there will now herd immunity too. But you know, we will see COVID. It's not going to go away. Mm. Um, and but it will have a different. It, it's different to epidemic COVID. So the the thing about epidemic COVID. Is that it killed young, otherwise healthy people, um, as well as the old and the vulnerable, and you know it, it was killing bus drivers, it was killing NHS staff, it was that was, that was why it was worth being a bit scared mm. in the spring, but that's not what happens with endemic COVID, and endemic COVID, you know, it, it's it will be like the flu. My grandfather used to call the flu the old man's friend, you know, when everything else is failing, then something needs to carry you off. And it's, it's a common way to go.
1: Nick, how does all of what she's saying translate into the data? Does it,
3: does it match? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, in fact, I would t- that's not a good <clears throat> word. Astonishing. When you look at where the deaths are occurring. So this is now where, we move from the domain of the pathology, the pathological science, to um, the domain of actuarial science and the population statistics, what you see is that the deaths are occurring in the wrong place, and among the wrong types of people um, to be COVID deaths. So these are the salient features, and I'm speaking now about the United Kingdom, because we do not have this information available in South Africa or for other countries uh, to nearly the same extent. Um, But in the United Kingdom what you see is that excess deaths in hospitals are actually below their normal levels for this winter season that they're in and deaths in home are above their normal levels. We see that respiratory virus deaths are below their normal levels and that doesn't gel with this enormous deaths curve that's being presented in the official uh, deaths uh, reporting. And so the story that uh, Dr Craig tells us looks entirely sound. It, In fact, I've used the words medico-legal fraud and I don't throw those around lightly. Um, I believe that if two things were done, uh, first of all if the cycle thresholds that um, Dr. Craig has been talking about were reduced to a level that would um, not catch uh, subclinical cases, um, and if deaths were only counted as official deaths, if there was an x-ray demonstrated uh, case of pneumonia, that both of the curves would substantially disappear. Dr. Craig, do you think that's a fair statement or do you think I'm exaggerating? Yeah, I think there
2: is, I mean, absolutely agree with you about the pneumonia thing, that like we had an epidemic of death certificates with the mention of pneumonia on them in the spring. Throughout the summer, there was fewer than normal of those, which you expect because potentially people who would have died in the summer had actually died a bit earlier. Um, but they are starting to increase a little bit because, as I said, there is some real COVID out there. But there's also this, a lot of the doctors who are on the front line trying to tell me, trying to persuade me that I'm wrong. And um, the stories I'm hearing from them are that there is some real COVID out there, which I been you know, accept. Um, that there are actually definitely people who have are dying of something utterly different but with a label of COVID and there is no pneumonia and that's just, you know, that's just a ridiculous situation. But then there is a third category, so there is a third category of patients dying of respiratory disease as they always would do but with a label of COVID. And so I think what you sometimes, what we're seeing is again a testing issue when the hospitals were given tests, there came a point where you sort of hit critical mass and you have a test for every patient who's admitted, but then they were given more tests. So the hospital has to decide who to test again. And I think everybody would agree on who that should be and who it is are the patients who had a negative test, but they really think it's COVID. So anyone in respiratory failure with a negative test, they think we missed it on that test, let's test them again, and potentially a third time. And so patients who are in respiratory failure are getting tested more than other patients, and that results in them having an even higher risk of getting mislabeled. But the doctors that I know are telling me they're not dying like a COVID patient. They can see differences between these types of respiratory failure, because in COVID, the patient's oxygen levels just plummet Randomly, and then they come back up again, and then they plummet, which is a really odd thing to happen. And it makes every the doctors caring for people on edge because they don't know when they're going to see these sudden deteriorations, and it makes them have a very low threshold for bringing them onto ITU. But it also means that they, if someone else who can't breathe very well is labelled as COVID, they want to bring them onto ITU as well because they think, well, we don't know when this sudden deterioration might happen. But they're not deteriorating like that. They're deteriorating very gradually, the way normal respiratory failure patients deteriorate. Uh, but uh,
1: able- sorry, doc. Uh, so are you saying that that people get put onto ventilation a bit too quickly?
2: So um, actually, the, the I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that ITU doctors have a really difficult job, actually, of trying to decide who fulfills the criteria for admission and they, and they ration healthcare like no other doctor at the front line. That's mm. really tough and also really political. So they are bound to speak up whenever they can to try and get more resources for their hospitals and that's part of their job. And, but what, they, what they're doing with COVID and patients label COVID is they have a low threshold for bringing them in for very intense observation. It doesn't mean they need to be on a ventilator. It's just that they're in itu they're getting observed very closely it's one-on-one they're seeing lots and lots of observations and testing and when they do need respiratory help they're using something called CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure and what that is is just like high pressure oxygen blown through a mask so their lungs are not being inflated but they just are just being assisted and that kind of intervention uses a lot more oxygen than a ventilator would, which makes it even more stunning when you see the statistic that actually the UK hospital um, oxygen consumption as a whole, so across the NHS at the moment, how much oxygen is being delivered to hospitals, and it's below normal levels for the time of year.
1: Do you think, as per the title of, sure. this, of, this, of this video, do you think that, that we are in some sort of massive social experiment? Not necessarily planned, but just organically.
2: Yeah, I don't
3: think it's planned.
1: You you do think it's planned. I
3: don't.
1: You don't think it's planned, mm. right? And and Nick.
3: No, no, I don't think it's planned. I I've always said there's simpler explanations here. There's a the perpetuation of the hysteria suits certain people. Mm. It aligns with their incentives. You, you must always look when there's something going on that's wrong ask the question, what, what are the incentives? Mm. And you've got a range of people here, big pharma, pumping the the, the money into the vaccines and te- and making billions of dollars a month out of these testing kits that are being spread all over the place. Um, you've got people in political positions who uh, suffer from a major sunk cost problem. They've gone and committed um, you know, the, the biggest acts of their political careers. Mm. And if this narrative comes unstuck, they look like fools, which they are. Um, you've got people like the Gates Foundation who have um, pumped up this, this narrative massively and pressed governments and organizations like the World Health Organization into following these draconian lockdowns and into the test, test, test narrative and into the, the new deadly virus uh, scaremongering tactics um, and all of those people stand to lose a lot if this narrative comes unstuck, so they're heavily vested in maintaining it. And what you've just heard is a triangulation. Okay, We've got the reason why the testing is going wrong, coming from a noted pathologist and fellow of the the Royal College, and you've got an actuary telling you that the numbers in the the death um, and case uh, profiles don't make actuarial sense, and then we hear that operationally, um, the oxygen demand isn't there, indicating that this, uh, this, there are not a lot of cases of pneumonia for this time of year, um, and not, and, or rather not a lot of cases of COVID. Um, otherwise, you'd be seeing that oxygen demand. Mm. So it's kind of a three-way pincer movement, zeroing in on the thing, and the, the people on the other side of this are hard-pressed to come up with an explanation to explain those observations, in light of the numbers that they are maintaining are real and the way they do this at the moment unfortunately is by refusing to engage in debate Mm. and by suppressing alternative narratives quite aggressively whether through pressure on social media um, companies or through direct pressure on mainstream media companies Um, so it's a very concerning situation um, I, I, I empathise with people who see in this lurking in the shadows a conspiracy. I understand how that can appear to be the case uh, to people, because how could it possibly be that yeah. the world has gone so completely mad in the face of, you know, um, what, you know the evidence that they see? You know, that must be organised, that must be orchestrated. But manias and hysterias very often have quite parochial origins. Mm-hmm. They don't need, you don't need the, um, the Blofeld and in, in, in Spectre uh, in the background as much as uh, Klaus Schwab resembles both. But um, You just need groupthink. You know, we, yeah. Groupthink is an ingredient. And fear. Once you've started people on a course mm. of fear, it is very hard to tip them off it. But... You know, Jim. The really disappointing thing here, here in South Africa, we had this article this week by a group called that call themselves the Scientists Collective, and they are kind of have try, are trying to establish themselves as the authoritarian voice on uh, all matters COVID. You know, mm. writing this article, several articles, and where are they on the story? No, they're um, inflating and inflaming this narrative around long COVID, which has. No statistical basis, it's a viral sequelae are a common story and there's really nothing in the epidemiological statistics to suggest that there's anything exceptional going on with COVID. So they're inflating that story. And unbelievably to us, they went and applied the U.S. infection fatality rates to the entire South African population, concluding that 390,000 people might die in an article this week. You know, after, after we've retraced from these ridiculous models at the beginning of the year and completely ignoring the dozens of scientific papers talking to the issues relating to pre-existing um, immunity that uh, Dr. Craig mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast, you know, and, and how does this come to pass? I mean, these are these are good scientists who have done much for the country and in their past careers have done sterling work, you know, people like Dr. Glenda Gray, Shabir Mahdi, um, You know, they're they're amazing people, but here they are signing this utter garbage and inflating the fear narrative. And I think what it is, is to an extent, they were taken in at the beginning. They regarded us as freaks when we tried to point out that the severity was being overestimated and that lockdowns had adverse consequences. They poured scorn on us. Now we turn out to be right and they weren't so right. And so they have to continue on the trajectory and it's taking them into a pseudoscientific domain of masks and their supposed dramatic effectiveness which contradicts all the scientific information of long COVID mm-hmm. you know of further deaths of, se- of enormous second waves this is the world they're occupying now they, they have their brains have been captured in effect by the fear
1: but why won't it end I mean Dr. Craig your lockdown and our lockdown has been very similar and um, and now they're talking about a second wave here in South Africa. I don't know where you are. You're on your like 17th wave already. Who knows?
2: know <laughs> we're, we're still saying we're in a second wave.
1: <laughs> but I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Why, why are they pushing a completely incorrect, uh, unscientific position globally?
3: F- fear of embarrassment.
2: I think it's also fear of a deadly virus. You know, I think the people who are are making these decisions are in a bubble surrounded by people who are potentially more scared than anyone. They've got responsibility for this population they believe is susceptible to a deadly virus. And in spring, things worked out badly. You know, things were worse than they had thought they were going to be. And I think they were um, disturbed by that. Mm. I think that 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 is reflected in their actions consequently and that, you know, having having that responsibility, having the fear more than anybody and having it having that stress that they had in spring Mm. makes a toxic cocktail now that they they are not reacting rationally at all.
1: So let me throw a counter a counter yeah. question at you. How how do you know that you're correct? Let's let's say now that we look at all the media that says, well, lock, lockdowns have shown to work and then present this and present that. How do you know that they're wrong?
2: So, I mean, I've worked my socks off on this because I would not be putting my neck on the line in public if I hadn't checked every single avenue. So I have been very careful of what i've said and i have said more and more as time's gone on because i've been able to do more and more checking and i've said my thought process has been in public i have used twitter as a sounding board and i've been corrected on it early on as well there were things i was getting wrong as i was learning and um and the thing is that when i present evidence that i've you know researched and built up and and i share it the way that people who disagree with me respond is purely emotional. And I don't get any evidence from them that contradicts what I'm saying. And, you know, as I said, that there have been occasions where I, I, was, I was learning and being corrected actually more in the other direction. Because there were certain aspects I was worried about that I was wrong on including the antibody levels. I really thought that there was some, you know, that there was reason to be fearful that we had susceptible people still. And that caused me to dig in and learn more about how that testing was done and to just sort of put that one to bed. And um, but, you know, until, until we see evidence of the contrary and while evidence from every direction all backs up that story, then, you know, I think it's an evidence-based position that I'm taking. It's not an emotional one. It's not a personal opinion. It's just
1: where the evidence has taken me. And, and and Nick, how do
3: you know that you're right? Yeah, so a very interesting thing has happened since I last spoke to you, Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, the process of scientific explanation is a fascinating thing. Our first observation about lockdown is that the effects anticipated by the modelers were nowhere in evidence in the epidemic data which was emerging from the northern hemisphere, the massive uh, step changes in the reproductive rate of the virus and the supposed um, saving of lives that was predicted, you know, neither of them were in evidence. Okay, and we looked at that and we were quite surprised. But then we, we're, we, we're people who don't like making observations in the absence of uh, good scientific explanation. So we were a little bit you know, uneasy about mm-hmm. the whole setup. And we started reading and started studying and we spoke to people who were epidemiological modeling experts. And what we found completely astonished us, because there are a couple of things here that just you, really make you scratch your head. The first one is that from for more than a decade, modelers have known that if you have a very age-graduated mortality function, and what that means, is you know that's young people are not at risk of death and old people are at high risk of death. Okay, so that's what's called age graduated mortality. In the presence of age graduated mortality, models can show that mortality will actually worsen if you do a general lockdown. And the reason for that is it's your vulnerable people are the least mobile to start with, and what what you actually want is to get to herd immunity without including them in the exposed community and by dropping everybody's mobility what you do is you flatten the, the the difference between the non-vulnerable people who are more mobile and the vulnerable people who are less mobile and you actually put them on the front of the bus as it were you 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 increase the probability that the vulnerable people are in the exposed group and this has been known since you know 2011 if not before we haven't found earlier papers but Um, It's it's several modelers who are currently active in the the COVID world uh, are are very knowledgeable about this. And what it means is that not only is failure to save lives expected under general lockdown in terms of these models, but we actually expect a worsening of COVID mortality. And as the southern hemisphere uh, epidemic curves fall in and we collect more information, that is indeed what we're starting to see. That general lockdowns are associated with worsening COVID mortality. Okay, so now what's happened? Our early observation that we were raising the alarm on, and that people were shouting at you can't be the case, you're breaking the laws of physics, you, you know what are you going on about? You don't know what you're talking about. You're not epidemiologists, etc., etc., etc. Now that simple observation that we made that guys, what you're predicting isn't visible in the data, mm. is now supported by an explanation that it is hard to disagree with, and that makes it incredibly persuasive. Um, And for that reason, I regard our explanation as the best available explanation. I'm a Popperian epistemologist, meaning that I expect every single theory in science one day to be surpassed by a better one, (laughs) and that includes ours, but right now, ours is the best
1: theory. Herman has a question, if you don't mind me just quickly going to the comments, he wants to know Dr. Uh, Craig. Is it true that minks are transmitting the coronavirus to humans? And does this mean that animal-to-human transmission is occurring faster than thought?
2: Um, Okay, I haven't looked deeply into the the mink story. My first reaction, though, to it is to be skeptical that they even have it at all, right? So who knows what the mink's genome looks like? And if you don't know what the sequence of a mink's DNA is, how do you know it's not just cross-reacting with the COVID test, you don't. And it's, so it's a bit odd that, you know, the more mink you test, the more positives you find. I just, I think we need to be highly skeptical that there's anything to that story at all. But like many viruses, other animals absolutely will have it and it will be of no consequence and there's no need to get excited about that. <laughs>
1: On that, um, Dr. or uh, well, P- Professor Bhakti said to me yesterday that, that coronaviruses have been with us pretty much for as long as influenza. Why, why are we suddenly destroying the world economy if, if these viruses have been with us for so long?
2: So I think we, you know, we, I, I can, was also in spring bought into this story that this was a novel virus that none of us had immunity to and that's nonsense because it's very similar to the common cold it's similar to ones we have seen before Mm. and interestingly there's a study of um across southeast asia showing that um southeast asia have a lot of coronaviruses circulating compared with elsewhere in the world so they have much higher prior immunity even than we do um so you know, there was this worry that it that it was novel, but actually it's one protein in it that's novel and it's not completely novel, it's very similar to cells one, that protein. Um, so you know, we have prior
3: immunity. Can I can I point something yep. out, Jim? This hmm. was actually known, although not very well not not nobody made an, an effort to market the point. But in February, um when the naming paper was put out, it made the point that this thing is so similar to SARS-1 that it doesn't even constitute a separate subspecies. It's what's known as an individuum of the SARS-1 virus, which is like you, German Nick, are individua of Homo sapiens sapiens. Mm. You know, we, we're not a different species. So uh, calling this thing novel from the beginning was actually very misleading. And if I think if they had made the point of saying, look, this is so close to viruses that have been around for, you know, who knows how long, um, then, then the approach to it would have been different, and you wouldn't have had these modelers running around assuming universal susceptibility and
0: mm. saying,
3: unless we lock down, everybody's going to die, you know. That's an important point on, on this. And the other thing that's related, and I'd be keen, keen to hear uh, Claire's views, um, you've got countries like Australia and New Zealand, Mm. You know, running these very draconian lockdowns and they're hugely expensive. I mean, these, these lockdowns cost you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it's very much cheaper to conduct tests. They wouldn't have to have large sample sizes amongst the populations of those countries to assess the extent of pre-existing immunity, T-cell immunity and even maybe B-cell memory. You know these tests they're expensive on a a unit basis you know compared to like a PCR test Um, and so the projects are, are you know they're not completely cheap they will cost you millions of dollars to to run but in relation to the cost of lockdown it's a tiny tiny fraction and the fact that those tests are not being conducted is the closest that I come to believing conspiracy theories right because it would be such a simple thing to conduct Dr. Dr. Craig, do you, is yeah. there something I'm not getting right here?
2: No, I think that's a, a really important point to make. And I think what they have done, as many countries have done, is totally rely on the IgG spike antibody test as a marker of immunity. And so they think they've done that. They think it's adequate. They don't understand how that test was better. And, and yeah, I mean, absolutely, we should all have done that. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be a big sample to prove the point.
3: Yeah, I would imagine a few hundred would do it. You know, if you found that there were 50 out of 100 people who had T-cell or B-cell cross-reactivity, then you'd you'd have your answer, right? Uh, You'd then do a bigger study to make sure you weren't just testing a neighborhood that happened to have an outbreak or something like that. But um, it's just such a cheap step and and could completely, you know, I mean, the observation is that for most of the world, this uh this virus has not taken a toll that even comes close to approaching um epidemic thresholds you know we're talking about the whole of southern and southeast yeah. asia oceania there hasn't been an epidemic um uh, you know based on normal uh epidemic death thresholds and it's not because they're all locked down the same no there is a huge diversity in lockdown stringency in that region um and you have some countries that are just not locked down uh, maybe they had like a very brief one at the beginning. that have had zero deaths. That's because of pre-existing immunity. It's not because of some magic contact tracing mechanism or the bicy- people that they had driving around or bicycles to catch all the the contacts. You know. Well, just there's so not, you know, Nick, No, yeah.
1: Just so yeah. you know, North Korea <laughs> hasn't had a single COVID case.
3: Of course. <laughs> Um, they I shot wondered. them all. They shot them all before they died. You know, it's, it's
1: um, <laughs> I don't know who, which one of you to ask this question, so I'll just throw it at you. But uh, what if, what if in two thousand and nine there was excessive H one N one testing? Would we have found a pandemic? that—that
2: that is what happened in two thousand and nine. So two thousand and nine swine flu. um, was a real pandemic in that there was this slightly different Mm -hmm. type of Mm -hmm. influenza. And it was after the winter normal influenza deaths, there were some extra cases in the spring that came up in an epidemic curve and then fell. And then they kept testing and kept testing. And the number of influenza cases in total was falling to very low summer levels, but the proportion of those that were being called H1N1 was going up and up and up and up. So at the end of the real pandemic, about 20% of the influenzas diagnosed were H1N1. And by the time they stopped testing, it had got to over 60% of them. Because that they had exactly the same problem that we have now. They had a PCR-driven pseudo epidemic. And the the way they showed that that was the case was when the manufacturers managed to produce antigen testing. So that's not testing for the RNA anymore. It's testing for the actual viral particles of proteins that the virus produces. And when they produced these tests, they carried them out and everybody tried to rubbish them because they Mm. were getting low numbers that were confirming what the PCR seemed to be showing them. And there are still publications that haven't been withdrawn in the medical literature where they were rubbishing these antigen tests. There was nothing wrong with the antigen tests. They were really good tests. And all of the experimental and all of the like, work to show that they were good tests was really good quality. And we have the same situation now. We have antigen mm. tests that they're just starting to be rolled out. They are exposing this PCR problem. And the reaction we're getting from people caught up in the delusion is to rubbish the antigen
1: tests. But
2: they can only say the antigen tests are not very good at picking up these cases. Now, we know that's not true because of the studies on these tests. They pick up at least 80% of cases, which is just as good as PCR. It's not perfect, but it's Mm. as good as PCR. But even if you say, well, say they only find half, the kind of difference in the numbers between the ones being picked up with antigen testing and the ones apparently being picked up with PCR, is vast. It's too big a bridge to gap by saying it's missed some. But they they just won't let that penny drop. It's it's quite frightening, actually, seeing people who are very clever people, whose job it is to understand this stuff, and they are holding on to the delusion.
3: This is exactly what we're seeing in South Africa as well, mm. uh, Claire, with the Scientist Collective. they They're holding on to the illusion. And I think, Jeremy, it, it, I mean, I, I, I take it as something that everybody knows, but uh, I, it might be worth saying, just in mm. case there are people who aren't aware, that swine flu was the, the swine flu uh, mania that that was nipped in the bud by a, a, a German doctor, Dr. Vodok, um, was started off by none other than Neil Ferguson, who's... Ant farm model launched us into lockdowns all over the world by predicting, you know, that tens of millions of people, or I think it's even more than 100 million people, would die worldwide. You know, just a f- fantastically wrong model. Um, he was the same man who was behind the launch of the swine flu. And so, you know, th- there is a question that has to be asked at the bottom of this: Why have we set up our supernational organisations so that they are incapable of learning? Um, what is th- what are the features of those organisations which stop them from changing in the face of being wrong and adopting new explanations and for how the world works and yeah. taking new approaches um it's it's very strange i think i think also sorry German. one more yeah. thing mm. november 2019 the World health organization had a standard for pandemic respiratory virus response and that standard very clearly updated in november of last year said thou shalt not commit the crime of general lockdown. Mm. They called it quarantining of the healthy, but it says there in black and white, you don't do it. Don't be a numbskull. And what did we do? What did they do? Tear up the rule book. So just just look at all these facts that are converging. We've added now a fourth one, which is this observation between the difference in the test results between the antigen and PCR. Uh, the other three, the problems with the testing, the, the actuarial problems the oxygen demand Mm. look at all the smoking guns here you know Mm. how can we how long are we going to continue to ignore the facts and fully face up to the obvious reality that this is all political
1: yeah it's definitely political and i mean there are a lot of questions coming through now asking about how long do you think that this is going to continue and i an, an extension to that because we haven't even mentioned it but is mask wearing um dr craig tell me a little bit about the pros and cons of different masks?
2: Hmm. So we use masks in the labs, right? Because we're trying to, you know- Surgical. Well, the thing, when you're using, when you're working with viruses in the lab, you have to have really high tech equipment. And so there's only very few labs that do it and the masks have to be carefully fitted. And, you know, you can't have you basically can't have air getting in between because viruses are that small. And, I mean, even the PPE gloves that people are using, the size of the pores in those gloves is... It, it would be like wearing chainmail to the beach to try not to get your skin sandy. Right. You know, the holes are quite big for a virus. So viruses are so tiny, it's really hard to get your head around quite how tiny they are. Um, and so yeah the masks i just they were never going to work there was there was never any way they could work i mean it i think they i think they were introduced here as a way of doing something you know they wanted to be shown to be doing something and people will buy that as an idea but I don't think they've had they could have had any effect except for saying that there were doctors on the front line who tell me that there's an odd kind of pneumonia around at the moment, that the, some of their patients are not what they would normally see this time of year. They're not saying it looks like spring. They're saying there's something funny this year. And none of them seem to have thought that mask wearing might come with pneumonias. You know, that seems like quite an obvious consequence to me.
3: Are you are you talking about bacterial pneumonias, Claire?
2: Yes, although actually some of them seem to be atypical pneumonias, but they do have um, which which are more likely to be viral, um, and yeah. but you know that but the point is surely that you know if you've got a patient who has respiratory problems already and you make them wear a grubby mask over their face, there will be consequences.
0: Mm. Um,
3: and, and another example here, Jim, of how the you know the the scientific or, or, or physiological intuition that uh, Claire is giving. Corresponds or corroborates the actuarial analysis. We can't see beneficial effects of mask mandates in the epidemic data curves. So when countries implement and suspend mask ma- mm-hmm. mandates, of course there have been a lot more implementations and suspensions. But there's no signature. You, do, you know, if masks were these things that were so effective that when somebody refused to wear one on a plane, you had to turn the plane around, otherwise everybody was going to die. You know, um, we- if they were that efe- if, if they were that effective, we would see. Uh, something in the epidemic data curves, and we mm. simply do not. And and we keep on putting this channel challenge out there because it's a, it's it's an exist a non existence problem, right? I say to people, just show me one country, show me one event, uh, where I would be able to tell tell me show me a curve and say, listen, somewhere along this curve, mm. there's a mask mandate impact that we have detected. Now you go and detect it. You know, um, if 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 one example comes like that, I'll change my mind. But I haven't seen one. It's just very difficult to. Uh, to imagine why we are persisting with this idea if both the physiological science and the actuarial science uh, speak in favor of this all being nonsense.
1: Can I just throw a a scenario at you, an anecdote, Dr. Craig? Um, So my wife and I flew between Johannesburg and Cape Town a few days ago. Now, when you're walking through a very large airport and you're pulling luggage, all right, and you aren't allowed to take off your mask, all right, so... I'm quite unfit and I'm climbing a lot of stairs and walking around the airport and I'm breathing obviously heavier because it's, it's hot and stuffy. Then I have to keep it on for the entire two hour duration of the flight. Now is, is that surely, surely unhealthy? It has to be.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure airports are particularly clean places or airplanes really. So to be having a slightly damp piece of cloth over your face in an air, in a, you know, place that has—it's not that clean. It's horrible. It's disgusting.
1: Yeah, I mean, surely, yeah. surely that is more more dangerous than me not wearing a mask in close proximity to others.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And the, the 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 other thing that's the other sort of crazy thing about masks was how they were sold as being able to massively reduce risk of infection. So we had Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, saying that the risk of infection without a mask was 70% and that it would only, I don't know, five or one or something mm-hmm. to use a mask. It's just an utter, utter nonsense. When we know that people living together, sharing their kitchen, sharing a bed with people, they could only spread it to half of them, you know, and that's when they're with them throughout their entire symptomatic
3: period. I can top that story with a funnier one, Uh, the week before last, Dr. Hans um, Kluger, uh, who's the regional director of the World Health Organization for Europe, came out with this, I mean it's hysterically funny really, he he said, "If we've only got 60% mask compliance in Europe, okay, if we could push it up to 95%, it would be just as effective as lockdown, okay. Mm. Which is, you know, there's no science supporting any of that. It's garbage. Mm. Okay, but wait. Except lockdowns thing. aren't effective. Yes, lockdowns <laughs> aren't effective. So he's probably right. The, the mask, 95% mask compliance would be exactly as as effective as lockdown. It's it's you know you can't make it up. The guy almost like, he gave us our best comedy hour of uh, the whole of coronavirus. But I've got a I've got a response.
1: friend, I've got a friend who says, yes, but germ. Um, If I'm wearing a cloth mask, it stands to reason that if I cough or sneeze, it's it's going to help. Dr. Craig.
2: Do people really keep it over their face when they're sneezing? I mean, really? Do they? I just don't think anyone would do that. No one's going to sneeze into a mask on their face. Anyway, if you did do that, you'd produce fewer aerosols. I think that that's probably true. But you don't produce zero and... As I said before, that the, when you can't transmit it that
3: easily.
1: Right, uh, right.
3: I, I, I think I, I think also it's it's you, we've got to be very careful when we're dealing with the very small and the very numerous things in the world that, that you know as, as as Dr. Craig said, they're almost unimaginably small, you know, um, and, and unimaginably numerous as well. You've got to be careful about using your basic intuition. Well, if I put a barrier, that it'll mm. it'll do something. Uh, and I had a very interesting conversation with an a, a chap who's knowledgeable about aerosols, and he said, "Just if you if you catch something on a mask and then breathe in and out through it, the thing that's on the mask is going to aerosolize. you know so mm. you don't don't assume that it, you know catching the big droplets is actually going to do anything because the the moisture goes somewhere after that, and the the virus that's on the dust or the the little aerosol droplet, is um also goes somewhere it doesn't all just accumulate it's not like at the beginning of the day you can weigh the mask and, and at the end of the day find you know more viruses stuck on the mask it's, the, the stuff's going somewhere uh, i think so i think there's a really a lot good of assumptions point. And made. If, mm. yeah.
2: yeah and if you if you're going to sneeze into a tissue and bit it then you know the people around you are protected if you sneeze into a mask and then have a conversation with them you've saved it for later <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's disgusting it's like catching it's food it's like catching food in funny, your beard right?
3: Nick <laughs> oh yes I catch food in my bed all the time uh, it's just embarrassing <laughs> come on to podcasts with you know, yesterday's breakfast but um, <laughs> the, it, it, it's just, you know, isn't this just comical it's just, we, have, we have these scientists claiming and, and the funny thing about that article that I was speaking about earlier the Daily Maverick article by the Scientist Collective is they said this is all beyond debate mask effectiveness is a matter of certain science, you know, I can't remember the exact wording they used, but they were trying to shut down the, the debate. Listen to this conversation. Okay, listen to the conversation. Is this really the issue that they, the, the hill that they want to die on? And how do people who have a scientific mindset to start with get to this point? The psychology of this is absolutely crucial to understand if we are to move forward, because we're going to have to move all these people as well.
1: Yeah, uh, we've 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 gone slightly over time, but I'm going to try and keep you on for a couple more minutes if it's okay with both of you. All right, uh, because there's there's just a couple more questions and talking points I want to throw at you. But let's let's use the devil's advocate argument that well, millions of people uh, have been wearing masks, and flu is right down this year.
2: Yeah, so the thing with diagnosis of flu is that it's not easy to do and it's often not done. But um, when, you, when you have a new flu, which we have every season, we have to go to different parts of the world to learn what flu they had in their winter, for, for you know depending if you're southern or northern hemisphere. So you prepare for the flu and you prepare a vaccine against what, the new strain, but you also prepare a test against the new strain. And this year, people have been slightly at a loss as to what to use because they haven't been diagnosing it. So the test itself potentially isn't as good as it normally would be. So already you've got a problem with picking it up. The next problem we have is that people who've got influenza symptoms because of the world we're living in spend several days being chased around to see if they have COVID. Mm And the window of opportunity to diagnose an influenza is quite short. So you miss that window if you've spent the whole time chasing around after COVID. And then uh, most influenzas are just diagnosed by doctors looking at the symptoms and saying, well, that looks like an influenza. But if you've got no test for the influenza because you've missed the window, but you do have this new test, then it's, that creates a bias that if you're going to get some of these people testing positive, even if the tests are faulty, you're going to categorize them as that new disease influenza. So some of them are being misdiagnosed. Now, on top of all of that, it is possible that reduced contacts may have reduced influenza a bit, um, because influenza actually isn't even as spready as COVID. So it's quite hard to catch. So, yeah, we might have reduced it a little bit as well. But I think the first points are probably the main ones.
1: I have to deal with the elephant in the room because it's constantly coming up in the comments and on social media. Dr. Craig, how do you know COVID-19 is real? How do you know it actually exists?
2: Um, So... We know it exists because we had a spring pandemic. I've described to you how it killed particular types of people because it's a real infection. We had excess deaths that went along with it and you wouldn't see excess deaths unless you had a real infective agent that caused it. There was a lot of concern at the beginning um, that the virus hadn't been isolated and that the sequence data was being used from elsewhere. But those concerns were I mean, there were genuine concerns, but just what we had to deal with because it was under time pressure. But consequently, you know, the virus has been isolated. They've proved Cox postulates in animals with it. They have sequenced it, and we've been able to trace how the different strains have evolved in different parts of the world. Um, So, and, and we've cultured it as well in cells, in the lab, in culture, there are lots of experiments where they've done that, and they've used that to show how well the tests are working. So yeah, absolutely, it exists. It's a virus, but it's not a very exciting one. It's a variant of a common cold. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, Jim, but you're wrong about the elephant in the room. That's not the elephant.
1: Oh, what is? What yeah, is the yeah, elephant?
3: The the elephant is asymptomatic transmission.
1: Ah, yes.
3: Oh
2: uh, yeah, yeah. That yeah. So that's I, been I'm working on that. At the moment, I haven't. So the thing thing with asymptomatic transmission is, first of all, we need to be clear on the terminology because some people have, they're asymptomatic, but really they're pre-symptomatic, right? So there's a period, the incubation period where the symptoms haven't developed. And there probably is a short window before symptoms develop where you potentially can spread it. But leaving aside that scenario, The stories of asymptomatic super spreaders that have had us the whole world locked down are dubious. So what's happened is that there were lots and lots of publications come out of China in February and March, like crazy numbers of publications on COVID, often with the same names appearing again and again, often people who'd never published in the medical literature previously. And the stories of asymptomatic super spreaders were almost all published by China. And some of these stories had big numbers. You know, they claimed to have got sort of 4,500 people in their study. And what happens in medicine is that those kinds of studies are treated almost anecdotally because they're quite small numbers of people. There's a story of a group and a cluster and one outbreak or not. And so in medicine, we say, well, we don't want anecdotes, we want evidence. And so people do what's called a meta-analysis, where they trawl all of the published literature for the anecdotes, bring them together and say, well, these papers showed there was nothing as asymptomatic spread. But these Chinese ones, well, they showed that it was a really big deal, and they had really big numbers. So they weight the studies by the numbers and then take an average and say, there you go, that's, your, that's how likely asymptomatic spread is. But essentially, it was Chinese propaganda that the West completely fell for, and have and then the publications end up coming from you know really um, from doctors of good repute from institutions of good repute, but with a mean taken between what's real and what was Chinese. There's one exception to this. There was a paper published from Brunei of people who'd gone to a religious festival, <laughs> and then a, a handful of them had apparently spread the disease asymptomatically. But when you start to dig into this, there's a few things that raise red flags for me. The first is that the the, the, the publications mention nothing about the testing, and I've written to the authors and they admit they don't know what kind of testing is being done. The same authors had published on the first 135 cases in Brunei and had a 10% asymptomatic rate, which to me screams their testing wasn't working because at the beginning of an epidemic, mm. your cases should be symptomatic. It does, I don't know why they were testing all these asymptomatic people, but if you've got a whole load of asymptomatic positives, that you have to question whether you're getting false positives in your testing when that happens. And then the other thing, they got into detail about some of these cases from the festival. So there was a teenager who went to the religious festival and came and her teacher had a mild cough for less than one day. And that was apparently asymptomatic spread. There was also a man who came home and his wife complained of a runny nose for one day and their baby had a cough. That was called asymptomatic spread. So I don't think outside of China there's any evidence whatsoever of severe illness being spread by asymptomatic spreaders. And when you combine faulty testing with incredible Mm. symptoms then you find these coincidences and that's all they are
1: yeah that's precisely what professor uh, bhakti said yesterday
3: oh really okay yeah i haven't listened to that interview yet and so i'm not surprised to hear that he said that But, Mm. but i think it's important just to strike home how crucial uh dr craig's observation is because your normal response to um an epidemic Is to remind sick people to stay at home simple okay that's not good enough we are told for coronavirus because of these asymptomatic spreaders so we have to lock everybody up and everybody must wear masks the entire basis for the public health response is irretrievably connected to this notion of asymptomatic transmission point number one point number two Before coronavirus, all of the experts who have been chasing this lockdown mania, including Dr. Fauci in the United States, were emphatic that asymptomatic transmission was not a feature of other respiratory viruses, or this one. Sure. Um, Let's come in for a final lap.
1: Um, And just for the record, Dr. Craig, I absolutely love your accent. So I could listen to you talk all day. Um, we we South Africans have got a very grumpy accent, very rough sounding accent, I suppose. Um, you sound a hell of a lot more eloquent. I think you could you could read the simplest sentence and sound a, a lot more intellectual than both Nick and I. <laughs> oh,
2: are Craig, you said- really
1: looking as well? <laughs>
2: <laughs> now your accent your accent's a powerful one really people shouldn't
1: do. <laughs> Um. well where where do you see have you got put your crystal ball in front of you both of you what do you see happening over the next 12 to 24 months
2: Ooh, that's long so I I can't help being an optimist because you know life's nice too depressing otherwise and I have got a sense that the british are figuring out what's going on slowly but they're figuring it out and once people figured it out they don't go back it's quite a difficult thing to figure to sort of get to the side of the truth there's a lot to take in and you can't there's no compromise position to take you're either in the delusion or you've figured it out. You can't sort of have a stepping stone along the way. So it it takes work, it takes thinking that people are doing the work and they're figuring it out. And we've got uh, the Portuguese Court of Appeal Mm. that that single PCR testing was unlawful. There's court cases starting in Italy and in Germany and in South Africa. Um, And, you know, the thing about those court cases is is not just the case itself people who are powerful people have to notice this happening they have to sort of pay attention to that and i think those will have a dramatic impact Mm -hmm. wider than, than the countries that they're being carried out in and the and the other thing is that when you have these pseudo epidemics the data starts to get more and more crazy because things the things you're measuring no longer relate to disease they relate to the testing and the more crazy it gets, the easier the story is to tell. So just if we just sit back and wait for the data to do more crazy stuff, it'll be much, the the narrative gets much, much easier for us to explain to people. And they'll get it. They will get it. Um, and the, I think, you know, I think it's going to be messy. I think people finding out they were wrong don't always react to those situations in a benign way. Um, and... I think powerful people will fall. I think they should fall. Um, and I don't think it will take a long time when that starts to happen for us to get back to normal.
1: But sorry, you didn't throw in the word vaccination or vaccine in, oh, your, yeah. in your commentary. <laughs> so
2: my, my very optimistic take is that as soon as we really put this PCR thing to bed, with the court cases with the lateral flow testing, which is coming out across the world, then the vaccine trials collapse because all the vaccine trials are showing is that um, PCR test results were reduced, right? So what have they proved? They have not proved anything of any meaning anymore because we've shown the PCR test results aren't even reliable. So yeah, the the vaccine trials going at the moment will collapse when that happens. There was a brilliant study produced recently showing that um, antibodies created by MMR vaccination seem to be really protective against COVID. And MMR has been tested more than any other vaccine, but we know its safety profile and it's really very safe. And so I would be much, I'd be really quite happy for my parents to have an MMR vaccine to see them through the winter. Um, and, and I think that that should be pursued rather than looking at these new vaccines. I think that's an interesting way to pursue. However, if you know, if I'm wrong, if things don't happen in a timely way, then I'm quite scared about the vaccines. And I'm scared about talk of mandatory vaccination. I think it's wrong, really wrong. I think even with vaccines we know are safe, mandatory vaccination is wrong because it undermines trust in the medical profession and in the politicians. And that undermines vaccination programs that genuinely save lives. Um, I'm also scared about the vaccine because all that we're really doing is making sure people have very high levels of IgG to the COVID spike protein. And what we know about high levels of IgG to the COVID spike protein is that they can be harmful in two ways. One, the people who were most sick and died from COVID had the highest levels because what killed them was an overreactive immune reaction. So these vaccines could be initiating a response to COVID that's deadly. And when nobody's checking whether the vaccines save or cause lives, because they'd say they don't have time, they don't have big enough numbers. The other worry is that the IgG levels to the spike protein, that particular antibody, binds to healthy human proteins. And when that happens our bodies can end up with what's called an autoimmune disease, where the immune system attacks the body itself. And so there may be good reasons why the levels haven't been that high, um, because mm. we wouldn't want those kinds of antibodies in us. And so the, more than any other vaccine, because of those two points, We really need to be doing very, very thorough safety checks on these vaccines. Plus, they're using new methodology on these vaccines, which haven't been through thorough safety checks. So I'm really pro-vaccine generally. My kids have had more than they needed. I've had more than I've needed. You know, I don't mind the principles of vaccination. But this one worries me a lot. Nick?
1: Nick?
3: Yeah, I think the evidence uh, that will emerge in relation to PCR, in relation to lockdowns, in relation to uh, collateral damage, will become overwhelming and and uh, and bring the roof down on this whole escapade. I think that'll happen quite soon. Um, what I think is hard to think about is not so much the vaccine; it's a side issue. Uh, you know, the the vaccines are being tested in healthy people who don't get severely ill and don't die. So it's not. It's just a. You know, mean, very meaningless, as as Claire says, mainly just pointing to the inadequacies of the PCR testing uh, operational operationally. Um, but what I'm worried about is that um, when the roof comes down, people will begin to think about the consequential damages, the collateral damage. Uh, just to remind you, uh, if anybody needs reminding, there's always a personal story behind every one of those statistics. Mm. We had a terrible thing of uh, the the sister of uh, one of our members committing suicide after she had had to let go all the people from a business that she'd spent building over decades in mm. Israel. And, um, you know, th- that kind of story, when you realize that all of those deaths and all of this human misery uh, proceeded from junk science and from an hysteria that was promoted actively and, you know, when the science that showed that it was an hysteria was covered up or suppressed, um, I think people will get properly, properly angry. And so you're going to see heads rolling. Yeah. You're going to see institutions torn down, governments pulled down, um, and uh, the whole uh, roof come down on, on many, many institutions of science and uh, institutions of government. And I, I don't think that will all be bad. I think some of that action, anger is required because what this is pointing to is the grotesque inadequacies of our current systems for dealing with such problems mm. and of the major problem that lies in having over-centralization of decision-making. If, if we had done different things in different places and there hadn't been a World Health Organization tell, telling everybody to do the same wrong thing, then those wrong things would have been stopped earlier. Um, you know, if there'd been 30 Swedens instead of just one, Then this would have played out differently because Sweden is going to end the year with almost zero excess mortality unlike these countries with hard Mm. lockdowns such as Peru and South Africa which will have significant excess mortality even though we have fewer older people in those countries you know so people are going to get cross it's there's no question but we don't necessarily need to fear that process we would have to channel it and make sure that it doesn't turn into something that's fundamentally anti-science Science is fine. It's the institutions that have messed
1: up. Mm, thank you so much. I've kept you both a bit longer, um, but it was really a very important conversation. and I really appreciate your time, Dr. Craig. Uh, you, you are very, very uh, clued up. Um, uh, it's been a great pleasure listening to you. I, I, I need to go And listen to everything you said again because uh, I I, I'm a cartoonist I so you speak in in a level that's beyond my pay grade, (laughs) but thank you very much uh, for your time, Doctor Craig and Nick. As always, thank you for your time too. Um, Thanks
2: very much for having me. Yeah, long
1: may Panda continue fighting the fight for science, shall we say? Um,
3: Likewise to you, Jim. Thanks very much. And you keep it up. uh.
1: All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, The Battle of Ideas.